Good morning, Boker Tov, and welcome back to Parsha Perspectives for today. So great to be together again and to be able to have the privilege of studying Parsha's Noach. I want to thank our generous sponsors for the series for the year, uh, dear friends Becky and Avi Katz and family, in loving memory of David Grossman, Becky's father, Leila Nishmas David Ben Menachem Manash, whose neshama should have an aliyah. Thank you so much. If you'd like to sponsor a future uh, class, Please be in touch with Lee at brsonline.org. Okay, let's jump in. Parshas Noach, so much to talk about. All of Sefer Bereshis is so rich, not only with narrative and with stories, but with lessons and ideas that we can extract and apply to our daily lives today. Ela told us Noach, we're on page 30 in the Art Scroll Stone Chumash. Ela told us Noach, Noach ish tzadik tamim haya bedorosov, es ha'elokim hisalech Noach. This is the lineage, these are the toldos, this is the legacy, the story of Noach, who was a righteous man in his generation. Es ha'elohim is halech Noach. Noach walked with God, the Torah, the Torah tells us and promises us. There are two legacies of Noach, and each year we, we remind people of this. And of course Rashi famously quotes it. Was Noach a tzaddik relative to his generation? Was he subjectively righteous? Or was Noach objectively righteous? Is this something just compared to the corruption of his time? But if he lived in a normal time with otherwise normally moral and ethical people, there would be nothing special about Noah. Or no, Noah is extraordinary, and Noah is exceptional, and Noah deserves to be acknowledged for that. It's an age-old debate. It goes back till the time probably of Noah himself and earlier. This is not anything new to us. And every year there are the Noah haters, and every year there are the Noah lovers and the two perspectives of Noah. But I may have mentioned before, the Yotzer Chaim points out something interesting. If you look at Rashi, Rashi tells us, Among our teachers, we have those who teach Lishvach to praise Noah. If in that generation, that morally corrupt and empty generation, Noah was righteous, all the more so he would be righteous in another generation. Some of our teachers, some of our leaders, Dorshem, they uh, learn from the Pasuk, the Shvach, to praise him. And there are others who use the same Pasuk to conclude the opposite. To say that what? Relative to his generation, he was righteous. But if he lived in the generation of Avram, he'd be a gurnished. He wouldn't measure up to anything. Does it occur to you? Does it occur to you the following? Why does it say, The first interpretation says, there are among our teachers who learn it positively. And then it says, there are those who learn it in a negative or critical fashion. What happened to Merab Hoseinu? So Rabbi Yisrael of Koshnitz, the Koshnitz Rebbe says that why does it teach us this? Because it's saying the following. Anyone who learns it, Lignai is not Meirab If you look at someone and you try to see what's missing, if you look at someone and you try to come with criticism and hypercriticism to condemn, to marginalize, to reject, if you look at someone and you come Lignai to find what's wrong, you're not Meirab So only the ones who are Dorshim Lishvach, only the ones who look at and read the story and draw a conclusion in praise, they are Meirab Those who learn Lignai are not Meirab Those are not to be considered among our teachers. Okay, that is to begin. Ela told us Noah. These are the offspring, the generation. These are the storyline of, of Noah. 
And then the Torah tells us, What are his legacy? What is his lineage? What did he leave? He had three sons. Hashem, Escham, the Yafes. So on this, Reb Simcha Bunim the great Reb Simcha Bunim says, the toldos of Noach are Shem, Cham, and Yafes. He had three sons. And of course, the Torah here is identifying their names, Shem, Cham, and Yafes. But says Reb Simcha Bunim you can learn a little bit deeper, a little bit differently. Shem, Cham, and Yafes are not only descriptions of the names of his sons, who are in fact his legacy, but really they are the Avodas Hashem. His legacy are his attitudes, his personality, the work he put in to living a virtuous and righteous life. And how is that reflected in these three words? These three words are not just names, they are descriptions. Eshem. And he writes, Shame. He named one son shame. It means he was committed to shame. What is shame? Shame Hashem. An awareness, a mindfulness, a consciousness, a conscientiousness that wherever and whenever we go, Hashem is with us. Noach lived that way. What made him righteous, what made him a tzaddik, is that his toldos were shame, cham, and yafes. Number one, says Rav Simcha Bonim, is shame. That shivisi Hashem lenegdi summit, wherever I go, Hashem is opposite me, always. He's with me. He's watching over my shoulder. He's listening in. He is recording. Number two is Cham. Allah Person has to be Cham. You have to be warm. You have to be alive. You have to be vibrant. You have to be Cham. You have to have a varmkeit. You have to have passion and enthusiasm. So a shame. One of our toldos, our offspring has to be, our legacy, our reputation has to be shame, that we always walked with Hashem before us. Number two, cham, we have to be alive and vibrant and warm. And number three, as yefes. You have to do good deeds, kind, yafeh, beautiful. Shalem nemar b'mishnah, Rebbe Omer, the Mishnah Perki Yavos. Person should be yafe, yafli yafes, as yafes. Person should be beautiful inside and out. Should be um, someone should be able to identify and admire those parts. So Reb Simcha Bunim in a very Hasidic Torah says that these three names are not just the names of Noach, as in Ela told us Noach. These are their names, but rather Ela told us Noach. Noach's legacy is a commitment and devotion to these three things. Number one, a shame. That Shivisi Hashem Lenegdi Samid, he always had Hashem opposite him. Number two, Ascham, he was alive, he was vibrant, he was passionate, he was enthusiastic. And number three, as Yefes, everything was Yefeh, everything was beautiful and methodical and admirable, a very beautiful trait. I want to show you now from Rav Druk. Rav Druk, the great Rosh Hashiva of Yerushalayim, the great Talmud Chaver, of Reb Chaim Kanievsky. There's a magnificent set of svarim. We introduced it last year in the Parsha Shir, and we often incorporated it. It's called Eish Tamid, and uh, I'm very fortunate, actually. He gave me my copy and wrote a beautiful inscription inside, for which I am very grateful. And uh, his Torahs are magnificent. His beautiful Torahs. His father was the Drash Mordechai, the Mordechai Druk. His father was a great Darshan of Yerushalayim, and he inherited that quality. He has a set of svarim on the Parsha, which are Lamdus, which are incredible, and he has the Eish Tamid, which is the Drush on the Parsha, very worthwhile, and I wanted to share a few pieces with you. So he says the following. What does it mean, Ela told us Noach? This is Noach's legacy. And as I said at the outset, and we say each and every year, Noach, people clearly line up and divide into two teams. There are the Noach haters, and there are the Noach lovers. 
the people who see what's wrong with Noach and those who see what's right with Noach. Of course, only the ones who are l'shvach are raboseinu, the ones who choose to look and see and focus on the merit and the virtue and the assets, that's who are me'abaseinu, those are our teachers. So what does it mean, es ha'elokim es noach? The end of the Pasuk describes that Noach was a tzaddik. And how do we know Noach is a tzaddik? Because es ha'elokim his ha'leich Noach. Noach walked with God. What do those words mean? So the Targum Unklus says, if you look in your Chumash, we're on page 30 in the article Stone Chumash. The Targum Unklus translates Aramaically, and he says, what does it mean es ha'elokim his ha'leich Noach? So the Targum Unklus says, b'dechala d'ashem ha'leich Noach. Noach's great maila, his great virtue is that he has an awe of God. He identifies Hashem is the source of all, the omnipotent, infinite creator of the universe. He walks with God, it means, that everywhere he looks and everything he listens to, he sees and feels and hears Hashem everywhere. That's pshat number one. Targum unklos. Number two, the Svarno. The Svarno says, What does it mean? He walked with Noach. It means that he emulated he imitated. What does it mean to walk with God? What is the greatest form of flattery? Imitation. He imitated God. As the Gemara and Shabbos, Lamed Gimel, learns from the Pasuk, Zekeli Va'anveyu, Havadom How do we praise God? How do we glorify Him? By being like Him. How? Like He is kind and compassionate. That is who we should be. So Noah studied, admired Hashem, and then he tried to imitate and emulate him. And says the Sforno, that's what the Pasuk is testifying. Noah walked with God. It means quite literally, he imitated God. He walked with God. That's the Sforno. The third interpretation is the Balaturim. The Balaturim of Yaakov ben Asher says, Es ha'elokim esalech Noah, ha'elokim esalech Noah. Sofei Tevos Chacham. The Mem, the Chaf, and the Ches. Spell the word Chacham. The last letter of each of the words, Ha'elokim, Hesalech Noach, spell the word Chacham. Shema'alasa Shanoach, Shema'achmasa, Namar Lavatora, Shayachacham. So it says the Balaturim, a third interpretation and insight. What does it mean that Noach walked with God? It means he was a Chacham. He was wise and judicious and thoughtful. So three interpretations. What is the Torah testifying? Why did God love Noah? Why did Hashem consider him a tzaddik? Why did he choose Noah through whom to save and continue humanity and the universe? Uncle says, because he had Yerushalayim. The Svorno says, because he imitated Hashem. And the Balaturim says, because he was a Chacham. So Rav Druk now goes and expands, how did Noah perfect each of these three qualities in the areas of, her life, of his life? And it very much complements what we just saw from Rav Simcha Bunim of Peshischa. And he says the following, these Midos Tovos, these three qualities of Yirah Shemayim, imitating Hashem and acting with Chachma. Number one, Yirah Shemayim. The Gra writes on the Ramah, the Ramah in Shulchan Aruch begins, the very first simon, the very first sif of Shulchan Aruch, the Ramah writes, if Simcha Burim quoted this too, Shivisi Hashem lenegdi Samid, who klal gadol batorah of amalas atzadikim asherhochim lefnei elokim, that the righteous people walk around, and our bumper sticker, our motto, what appears on the mirror of our, it can't be in the bathroom because it's a pasuk, but what appears on our 
computer screen and what appears in our kitchen refrigerator and what appears in the back of our car. It's not that I see Hashem when I'm in shul or when the sitter is open, but then I close it and I go on with my day and I left Hashem outside of the gym and I left Him outside of work and I left Him outside of the supermarket. Hashem is opposite with me always, consistently and constantly. I take Him everywhere. That is a cloud gadol. It's a major axiom and principle of Torah. It is malos atzadikim. Kein yeshivas adam tenuos of oska vahu levado bebeso. Ki yeshivas tenuos of iska vahu lefnei melech gadol. It's not that we're isolated or alone. Whenever away or apart from Hashem, we are always before Him. That has consequences in terms of our accountability to Him. He's always watching. He's always listening. He's always recording. And it also has consequences in a very positive sense. One can always lean on Hashem. One can always feel the love and support of Hashem. He's reliable. He's dependable. He is always there. This is the way a Jew is supposed to wake up and start the day. This is the very first halacha of the day. We wake up and we say, Hashem, you're equal and you're opposite me always. And the Gro writes on this halacha, That's Mestama word of Simcha Bunim, got it from too. That the Vilna Gon writes the same thing in his commentary on Shulchan Aruch. Noach lived at this very first halacha, this very first mandate of the Shulchan Aruch. That a Jew wakes up and opposite him, him or her sees, Shivisi Hashem Lenegdi Samid. Hashem, you are always before me. Before I choose what to watch and what to say and where to go and what to listen to and what to do, I have an acute awareness, you are always in the room. When I'm prepared to collapse, when I'm about to implode, when I feel despondent and depressed and I'm ready to give up, I know you're always in the room. You're by my side. And that says the gra is what Noach, Noach excelled at. And that's what the Torah is testifying. Because Noach always lived with Hashem opposite, Hashem opposite him. We also find this with Avram Avinu. As it says with Avram, that we see with Chanoch, we see it with Avram as well. We see it with Yaakov Avinu Elokim Asher Hesalchu Avosai Lefanav Avram VeYitzchak. This notion of Tamid. This was the quality of our great matriarchs and patriarchs, and this is the quality to which we aspire to be like Noach, not like Mike. We want to be like Noach, and what it means to be like Noach is to feel Hashem's presence in accountability and in love and in support always and forever around us, to feel his love. That was interpretation number one, the Targum Unklus, Yiras Hashem, to see Hashem all the time. Number two, we saw was the Svarno. And the Svarno says, what does it mean? It means that Noach walked in the way he emulated and imitated Hashem. He felt Hashem's presence in that way. Where do we see this? Sort of, Druk writes the following. Noach excelled at chesed. Hashem is mahurachum afatarachum. Hashem is loving and kind, and we have to be loving and kind. Noach excelled at this. Where do we see this? The Medrash writes in the Medrash Tanchuma. Omer Rabbi Seinu, Shnei Masachodesh Shaasa Noach Bateva Lo Tam Tam Sheina Lo Biyom Vabala Balaila Shayu Asa Glazunas and Nefashu Shayu Imo. Noach, the entire time he was in the teva, he didn't sleep, not during the day and not at night. Why? What was Noach doing? Was he binge-watching Netflix? Chas v'shalom. What was Noach doing? Was he exercising like a madman? No. What was Noach doing? Nothing that served himself. 
Noah was selflessly taking care of all the other creations and creatures in that teva with him. The whole time, his eyes never shut. He never had a sound sleep. He was always responding to the call of the needs of the animals who were with him. Says the Medrash, One time he hesitated, delayed to feed the lion, and the, the lion, the lion uh, lashed out and hit him in the rib. And the Pasuk describes this. And And that knocked the wind, both physically and spiritually, out of Noah, that experience. Noah was incredibly devoted and dedicated to his family, of course, but also to all the creatures of Hashem. He imitated Hashem in loving all of Hashem's creations. Not just human beings who are B'Tselem Elohim, but animals too. A love, a sensitivity, a thoughtfulness, a kindness. Why didn't Hashem save Noach and the animals separately? There were all kinds of other means and mechanisms through which Hashem could have preserved the continuity of humanity and He could have spared the animals seven of each of the kosher ones, two of each of the non-kosher ones, he could have achieved the exact same result without having to make Noah build the teva and Noah live in the teva and have Noah be the captain of that ship and the social planner and the chef and the garbage collector and every other position. Wonders the Al-Shech HaKadosh, quoter of Druk, why didn't he do it easily, more easily? So we know the answer the Zohar HaKadosh says because Noah didn't daven for his generation. And he didn't daven for his generation, and that's why the Navi describes they're called May Noach. They associate the waters that destroyed the world. They're called the waters, the flood of Noach. Noach is responsible. He's accountable. He could have intervened. He could have interceded. He could have advocated. And he relinquished his leadership. He failed. He didn't save anyone other than himself and his family and the animal kingdom, which of course preserved continuity, but he didn't save the whole world. He didn't stop the mabul from happening. And therefore they're called the May Noach. What was the antidote, says the Al-Sheikh? Noach did not step up and care and save others. The answer was he had to go into this incubator. He had to go into this intense place where all he would do was care for others. He had to cultivate and refine and learn and realize this quality within himself that all he would do is respond and care about others, namely the animal kingdom. And that's exactly what he did. He didn't sleep. He didn't relax. He didn't have a moment to unwind. He didn't stop. He didn't sit down for a minute. All he did was care for others. So that is the second interpretation. Noach was beloved, and Noach walked in the ways of Hashem in the sense that he imitated Hashem, and he ultimately perfected that by being in the Teva and in that intense experience and place, caring so deeply and so effectively for everyone around him. Number three, we said, was the Balaturim. The Balaturim said... If you look at the last letter of each of the three words, you get the word Chacham. Noach was a Chacham. If you're in Florida right now, could be there's a mabul happening outside uh, right now. We've been having a lot of rain lately. So there's Mamish Givena Mabul outside. So what was the third interpretation of the Balaturim? Chacham. What does it mean? Noach was a Chacham. Chacham, not in the derogatory sense, he was a Chacham in the most positive sense. Where do we see that he achieved malas hashlemas vatimimus bechachma, says Rav Druk? We see the Ramah. 
Very, very interesting. Listen to this vort from, the, from Rav Juk. The Ramah says the following. The Ramah in the end of Hilchos Talmud Torah, it's in Yeradeya Simen Resh Mem Vav. And he says the following. The Ramah quotes two halachas. You ready? Number one. Kishem Messiah Meseches, Mitzvah Lesmach Velasa Suda Venikre Suda's Mitzvah. When you finish a Mesechta, there's a Mitzvah to celebrate. It's an accomplishment. It's an achievement. I would have thought you finished a Mesechta, a tractate of Talmud. Get back to work. Open the next Mesechta. Start again. But we say no. Pause and lean in. Pause and celebrate. Celebrate the achievement. It's a very important idea. Secular research shows that what actually encourages us more is not always being on the move with ambition and aspiration, but marking the achievements and accomplishments in our lives and setting aside time, actually rewarding ourselves to pause for a moment and celebrate an accomplishment. So the Ramah writes, when you finish learning a Masechta, stop and make a siyam and serve Chinese food. That's not in the Ramah. Neither are deli hoagie sandwiches. But that's the minute. But serve some delicious food and make a siyam and that's a sudas mitzvah. Halacha number one. Next halacha, at the very end of Hilchus Talmud Torah, the Ramah concludes, You're not allowed to learn Torah. You're not allowed to share Torah. You're not even allowed to think in Torah in a dirty, disgusting, repulsive place. And therefore, a Talmud Chacham, a righteous scholar, should not be in a disgusting place. Don't stand in a dump. Don't be in a smelly place. Why shall you hire Torah? Because the Talmud Chacham, who knows so much Torah by heart, who's tempted to think and learning, is forbidden, is not allowed to do it in a place which is degrading, which is disgusting, and therefore don't go in those places. In the bathhouse, in the mikvah, you're not going to, there you're allowed to. Last two halachas. So wonders of Druk. He says, I understand the halacha at the end of Hilchus Talmud Torah that if you make a siyam, pause and celebrate. And that siyam has the status of a Sudas mitzvah. I get it. Makes a lot of sense. Why does it make a lot of sense? Because the end of Hilchus Talmud Torah is where you're going to be making a siyam. But why are you putting the halacha of don't ever frequent a place which is smelly, which is putrid, which is malodorous, don't be in a place which is disgusting, degraded, repulsive, reprehensible, because you're not allowed to learn Torah, can't share Torah, can't even think in Torah there. Why would you put that at the end of Hilchus Talmud Torah? Where should you place that, logically, at the very beginning of Hilchus Talmud Torah? That's where it belongs, not at the end, asks Rav Druk. And listen to what he says. He says, what do you see from here? That a person should become so committed to learning a person should become so connected and attached to learning that they can't bear to not think about learning even when they're in such a place. That's why it's the end of Hilchus Talmud Torah. When you begin, it's unrealistic and it's unfair to expect that a person will achieve that level at the very beginning. But by the end of Hilchus Talmud Torah, our hope and our aspiration is that a person, a Jew, a man or a woman, has accustomed themselves to be so devoted to learning Torah that they can't even stop thinking about it and therefore they have to be careful to avoid going to the places where you're not allowed to think about it. So what does this have to do with Noah? You see that Noah also achieved this level of Talmud Torah. He was always learning. He was a Chacham. 
He reached this level of a chacham that he was always thinking. And now we understand Rashi. When the Pasuk says, From all the kosher animals, take seven. Why did he need more kosher than the non-kosher? Rashi tells us. What does he do with the kosher? When he gets off the teva, he offers karbonos on the mizbeach. So if you're going to create continuity, you're not going to achieve it when you slaughter the ones through whom you need the continuity. So we needed seven of the kosher because he needed to be able to bring them as karbonos as opposed to the non-kosher. So the Pasuk describes, take seven by seven, ish v'ishto. Hatahora Rashi writes, Hatahora Hasida Lios Torah Yisrael, Lamadnu Shalamad Noach Torah. Says Rashi, how did Noach know? How did Noach know which were kosher, which were non-kosher? How did Noach know? Says Rashi, what do you see from here? That Noach learned Torah. So why is Rashi telling us Noach learned Torah? Chacham. Esa Elohim is Noach. Noach's greatness was, he was a Chacham. The third interpretation of what it means, why he was beloved, why he was a tzaddik, why he was chosen, Esa Elohim is Noach. Okay, let's keep going. Now the Torah tells us, Ve'yemar Elohim Noach keitz kol basar balafanai, ki malah ha'aretz chamas mipnehem. Of course, it's not lost on me or you or anyone whenever we read Parshas Noach that how do we describe corruption? Hamas. Hamas. The terrorist organization that is bent on destroying Israel and driving all Jews into the sea shares the same name as the most corrupt generation that God decided to wipe out and bring a flood. A coincidence? I think not. So Kresh Baruch says, Ketz Kol Basar. This is the end. Balafanai. It's come before me. Why is it just come before me? It should be Ketz Kol Basar. Or just Malaharat Hamatz. It's come to my attention, says the Almighty. It has come to my attention that there is corruption in the world. It's come to God's attention. Everything comes to God's attention. So Rav Druk says, uh, there's so many beautiful pieces, we don't have time to read them all. But he says, What was the generation guilty for? What was the Makabapatish? What was the what what put it over the top that Hashem says, done? They've so violated the purpose through which I created the world. They're so corrupt that they so don't deserve to continue that I've got to press reset. Not a soft reset. I've got to do a hard reset. A flood. Wipe it all out and start again. What drove Hashem to that conclusion? Gezel. Because they stole. And Rashi tells us they stole less than a Shavapruta. Now, a Shavapruta means a penny, a minimum amount. What does it mean when you steal less than a Shavapruta? When you steal something that has no value, if you steal something of value... You're corrupt. It's terrible. We should criticize you. But the reason maybe you stole is you were unsure of how you would provide for yourself. You were jealous or envious. You were driven by temptation or lust or desire. You so badly wanted that thing of value that you stole it. But what does it say about you when you're willing to steal something that has no value? Is there a greater corruption in the world than you're taking something that belongs to someone else that objectively has no value to you? What does it mean about why you took it? Because Hamas, you're just corrupt. You're evil, you're wicked. You're just a terrible, terrible, terrible person. It's not that you're taking something which then has functionality, it's pragmatic, it has utility for you, it has value. You're just taking something to take it from the other. You're a low-life, reject, terrible human being. That's what it means, because a Beisden will only hear a case of Gezel that is... Shavapruta. It has to rise to the minimum amount of value for the Beisden to adjudicate upon it. So what does Hashem mean that 
It's come to my attention that so morally corrupt are they that they're even stealing things of no value that you cannot try and abase them, but says Hashem, it's come to my attention. It's not lost on me. It's Geschmack, no? You got to get the satisfaction of Druk's interpretations are, are beautiful. But what does it mean, what came to him? Malaha Aretz Hamas. And what was the thing that put it over the top? We said Rashi tells us Gezel. The Or Gedalyahu, Rav Gedalyashur says beautifully, I want to share a Torah with you. Says the Or Gedalyahu, why was Gezel what put it over the top? They had violated all the three big cardinal sins. They had been murderers, idolaters, and they were and they were Gilearias, and they were promiscuous. So they violated the three big cardinal sins. Gezel, they also stole something of no value, and that's what put it over the top? That's what drove Hashem to do a hard reset? What's Pshat? Why Gezel? Why Gezel? Listen to this interpretation of the Or Gedalyahu of Rav Gedalyashur. I love this Pshat. He says, you know why it's Gezel? What does he mean by Gezel? It's not the Gezel that they stole from one another. You know what the Gezel of the stealing that they did is, says the Or Gedalyahu? They stole the very purpose of creation. Hashem gave us this magnificent world and He deposited every one of us in it. And He said, enjoy it. Enjoy it. There's a beautiful world. Explore it and conquer it and enjoy it and derive pleasure from it. Make barbecues and learn to enjoy delicious food. Have relationships and experiences. Enjoy intimacy and physical pleasure. Enjoy this beautiful world. Just follow my rules. Follow my guidelines. Live moral and ethical lives. Have respect for yourselves and others. And in that framework and in that context, and with that set of rules and regulations, enjoy my beautiful world. And you know what happens? The generation who violate the rules and regulations, the generation who squander their time here on earth, who waste it on nonsense and narishkeit, and worse, who rob and steal from others, who take their talents, who take their skill sets, who take that strength and stamina and energy, who take the resources and they use it for negative things, they have stolen the ultimate gift that Hashem has given us, which is life itself. When we abuse our lives and forfeit our lives and concede our lives and waste our lives, we have stolen. Not in the sense of stealing from someone else, we have stolen from the Rebona Shalom. When a day goes by that we didn't maximize, when we have talents and skills and potential that we squander and waste and don't realize we have stolen from the Almighty. Every one of you, every one of us, I don't care how old or young you are, I don't care whether you're in the middle of work or whether you're retired from your profession, whatever stage of life, we are here for a reason. We are here for a mission. We are here for a purpose. It's to enjoy Hashem, derive pleasure, enjoy the world, but also contribute and give to the world repair the world, mold and shape the world in Hashem's image. And when we don't, we have stolen from Him. We've stolen from above. And says the Or Gedayor, that's the Gezel. What put it over the top is Hashem said, look, terrible, egregious. But you know what? I'm not going to do a hard reset of the world because of them. But when the world has become so corrupt, so absolutely corrupt, have so lost their way that the whole reason I created the world is now being violated and not realized, I've got to do a hard reset. Gezel, they've stolen from me why I created a world. And therefore, I have to do an entire hard new reset. The Kliyaka writes that the term Ketz Kol Basar, 
Kates kol basar, the end of all basar, the end of all flesh, is referring to the Yom Hamisa. Kates kol basar, balafanai. The day of death came before me. Hashem tells Noah, the day of death has come before me and it's complaining. He says, nobody thinks about me. Nobody's thinking about their mortality. Nobody's confronting their fragility. Nobody is realizing that they're not going to live forever. Everybody's just living like they are, like they are immune, not in the good sense, but like they are not vulnerable. They're not confronting their mortality. says Hashem, death came before me and said, nobody's confronting their mortality. They all think that they are going to live forever. And therefore Hashem says, I have to destroy the world. I have to remind them that they're in this world for a very short period of time. Everyone's in this world for a finite amount of time. And even if you live 120 years, it's a tiny blip of time in the context of eternity. We are all mere mortals. We have mortality. And therefore we have to take advantage of all of our time here and all of our gifts and talents and skill sets and all the resources we've been granted here. And when we do we fulfill the reason that Hashem created the world. And when we don't, and when we fail, then we have violated Gezel. We have stolen from the Almighty. We have stolen from the Ribona Shalom. He has no tolerance for that, and therefore he resets the world. Moving right along. Perek Vav, Pasuk Chavbez. We are turning the page. Psh, now we're flying. Perek Vav, Vav Pasuk Chavbez. Page 32 in the Art Scroll, Stone Chumash. So Hashem tells them, build a teva, Take a long time. Everyone's going to ask you what you're doing. It gives you the opportunity to stand on your soapbox, on your teva box, and to preach to the world. Noah failed to preach. And that we said he was accountable. They're called me Noah. But he does build the teva. Noah does, as God commanded him, so he did. Notice anything strange or funny in that formulation? It's a very unusual pasuk. Which two words do you not need in this pasuk? Read the text with some attention, mindfully. Vayas Noach, Noach did, he complied. He complied according to everything God had commanded. So he complied. What do you need the words? What are they adding? So he did. You know, when we started this Parsha Shir many years ago, we used to go through and read the Psukim one by one. We'd take a different section every year and we'd read. And we'd raise questions, and then we'd examine Rashi, the Ramban, the Ibn Ezra, the Svarna, the Orachayim, the Kliyakar. We'd go through the Chizkuni. How do each of them address the same question and give a different answer? And we point out that the Mafarshim, the medieval Rishonim, their style is not to actually ask the question and give the answer. They don't write in a question and answer format. They simply give a commentary, and our job is to realize what was driving them, what was their question. And we are to emulate them and to learn in the same way as them. Namely, to read the Pesukim and say, what's our question? Things should jump out at us. We should be bothered. We should be stimulated to think, to explore, and to use our minds. Shivan Panam La Torah. And to offer our own novel interpretations to Torah. There's room for our own innovation and creativity in interpretation of Torah. We're encouraged to do that. So, read this Pasuk again. Vayas Noach. Noach did. Kechol According to everything God commanded him, so he did. You just told me, so he did. So why are you telling me, so he did again, when you already told me, so he did? This is the question Rav Druk writes in his Eish Tomid. By the way, I don't get a cut of his farm. 
Not yet. Maybe I should negotiate it. But as of now, I'm not promoting it because I get a cut out of any of the svarim I tell you. It's because I've fallen in love with them and I want you to love what I love. So I tell you, but I don't get a cut. Why? Rodra calls our attention to the Ramban. We are not the first to wonder this. We are not the first to ask this. The Ramban also was bothered by this. And the Ramban also asked this question. And the Ramban says, why the repetition? So writes the Ramban, You know why the redundancy? You know why the repetitiveness? In order to emphasize that Noach did not omit, he did not leave out any detail. It's not that Noach just accomplished the big picture. He didn't just do the gist. He didn't just do the bare minimum. He did every single detail. Vayas, he did what he was asked. Kain asa, so he did to every minute detail, to every specific focused detail. That's the Ramban. However, of Druk quotes his great father, Adoni Avi Mori Varabi Zatzal, his great father, the Drash Mordechai, who says differently. And he says the following Noach, he built the Teva. And he schlepped in. He didn't have express movers. He didn't have help. He did alone. He schlepped in all the animals, all the food. Why did he do it? Why did Noah build and construct and schlep everything in and supervise an ark? Why did he do it? If you'd ask me, I'd say, you know why he did it? Because he wanted to survive. There was a massive storm. There was a flood. It was going to wipe out humanity. He wanted to survive. So therefore, he built a teva. He got in it in order to survive. Says the Drash Mordechai, says Rav Druk's father, the Pasuk is coming along to tell us that's not why he did it. You know why he did it? Because God said so. When God says jump, we say how high. That means to say that even the mitzvot that we do that are rational and that are compelling and that we can understand the reason behind it, we should be driven to do it not because it makes sense, and not because it enriches our lives, but we should strive to do it because Hashem said so. That should be the reason. Because Hashem said to do it. And if Hashem says jump, we say, how high? And maybe that's the pshat of why I know why it says this redundancy, Cain Asa. And then Rav Jerk quotes that he leaves the teva. Listen to this evidence that he brings to this interpretation. When does he leave? Even though the ground has been proven to be dry. Even though land is now safe. Noah only exits the Teva, descends when? When Hashem says, leave the Teva. Why did he send out the Yonah? Why did he send out the dove and the raven to see if the water had withdrawn? What's the nafgamina? Who cares if the water had withdrawn? If he wasn't willing to leave until God said it's time to go, say Minateva. Hayafshalavar, so you can explain. And so on and so forth. 
In order to know whether he could leave. How, he, he wanted to know, had the land dried up? Is it safe to leave? But ultimately, why does he go out? Only when Hashem says, Tzei min ha-teva. So maybe the extra words are to teach us that even when things make sense and we have a compelling reason to do something, we should be driven to do it ultimately and we should try to learn to do it ultimately because Hashem tells us to. That's Rav Druk. The Rav Rabbi Salavechik and the Rav Chumash, the OU Rav Chumash, also jumps on these words and listen to what the Rav Rabbi Salavechik says. Mayas Noach Kachol Asher That is Perak Perak Vav Pasach of Beis, the last Pasach of Perak Vav. The very first Pasach of the next Perak. Vayem Hashem LeNoach Bo Atav Vachol Beis Chalateva. Hashem says to Noach. Oh, you built it, you followed everything I told you, you and your whole family enter the Teva. Because I've seen to be righteous before me in this generation. And says Rabbi Salavechik the following, Avram's greatness was based on his firm belief in Hashem's promises. Many events occurred in his life that seemed to contradict the promise that the land would be his and that his children would inherit it. Avram often found himself in situations where he was ridiculed due to his faith. Therefore, with all of Avram's accomplishments, the one attribute that Hashem explicitly praises is his pure belief, that he believed in Hashem and he accounted it to him as righteousness. Tomim. Noach's belief was similarly tested. He built an ark for many years, explaining to onlookers that God was set to destroy the world while they derisively laughed at him. Despite all the obstacles and the taunts of his contemporaries, Noach did not deviate from Hashem's command. Once Noah clearly demonstrated his belief by completing the ark, Hashem remarked on his righteousness. Says the Rav, you know what causes Hashem to respond? Tzadik, ra'isi tzadik lafanai bador azeh. Hashem says, uah, I've seen a tzadik before me in this generation. What causes Hashem to react and respond, to give his approbation, to give his, his, uh, his support in that way, his endorsement in that way? What causes it is when Hashem sees that we're willing to follow what's right and what's righteous, even in the face of ridicule, even in the face of opposition. And this comment of the Rav, I find very empowering, gives a lot of strength in our generation, in our time. Because, you know, not all of what we believe, not all of Torah's moral values and code are synonymous or easily compatible with the world today. It's hard. Avram is called an Ivri. He's willing to live me'ever. When the whole world is on this side seeing it this way, and the Jew is asked to be on the other side, seeing it a different way. And it's hard. It's hard to withstand the pressure. It's hard to withstand sometimes the hate. It's hard to withstand being labeled or boxed in or called the name because we maintain or preserve a certain Torah or Jewish value. And yet, that, says the Rav, is what Hashem ultimately will endorse, is what Hashem calls a tzaddik, when we're willing to do what He asks of us, even in the face of ridicule, even in the face of adversity, even in the face of opposition, it's difficult, but ultimately, it is the greatest testimony to us. Perak Zayin, Perak Zayin, Turn to the next page. Page 34 in the Yerush Kroston Chumash. The Mabul, this flood, was for 40 days on the land. <coughs> Excuse me, 40 days on the land. And the water rose. What happened? The water increased and it raised the ark and it was lifted above the aretz, above the land.
So the simple understanding of the Pasuk is that as the rain fell and accumulated, and as the flood spread, the water caused the ark, the teva, to raise, to rise, and it rose above the land. That's the simple understanding. However, I saw a beautiful Hasidish Torah. says, read it this following way. This is not the Pashup Shat, it's Drush. And the Drush is to read it this way. You ready? Va it lifted the ark, vataram, and it became elevated me'alaaretz above the ground. That word teva, teva can mean two things. Teva means, as we've been translating it as, teva means an ark. Teva means ark. What else does teva mean? Teva means a word. Teva means ark, and teva, tevot are words. Teva is, an, is a word. So he says the following. We see the power and the importance of being careful and mindful with our words. When we sanctify our mouth and our words, when we lift speech, how do we rise above being physical beings? How do we rise above the lowliness of earthliness, above being mundane, profane? How do we achieve holiness? Let's raise speech. Let's elevate. You know, they talk about, and we need to talk about right now, when you look at the, the rhetoric and the hate and the vitriol that's going on, not just in the election, but the divisiveness in general in our world, over politics, corona, sports, any topic in the world, there's divisiveness and horrific vitriol and rhetoric. And what's the, in the vernacular, what do we describe it when we call on people? That we need to elevate the conversation. We need to elevate the communication. We need to elevate that the way we talk to one another. We desperately, desperately need to elevate what we talk about it and how we talk about it, with whom we talk about it and when we talk about it and where we talk about it. And that's the beautiful interpretation of this Pasuk. Lift eshateva, lift speech, lift the word, lift the power of communication. And when we do, we will all be elevated as a result. We'll all be exalted. We'll all transcend the lowliness and the earthliness. We'll all be elevated as a result. Wow, how, how, how important for our time. How beautiful, how very much not the pshat, but how very beautiful nonetheless this way of understanding this pasuk. What happens? Noach's on the teva, he's done everything, he hasn't slept, he hasn't been with his wife, he is exclusively dedicated to this project, to this cause, to this commitment. Peraches Pasagal, we're on page 36, chapter 8, verse 1. Vayizkor Elohim es Noach. God remembers Noach. He remembers all the animals, everything that's with Noach in the teva. Vayaver Elohim ruach al haaretz, vayashoku amayim. And Hashem passes a wind over the earth, and the water begins to recede. Recognize those words. Unfortunately, anybody who says Yizker recognizes those words. Those are the opening words of Yizker. Not the Kelmale that we say together, but Yizker proper. The Yizker tefillah begins with the words, Vayizkor Elohim. Which is very interesting. Why are we invoking Noach? Vayizkor Elohim is Noach to start Yizker. Much more peculiar is, why are we invoking memory with Hashem? Hashem is immortal. He's omnipotent. He's immutable. He's perfect. He doesn't have a failing memory. He doesn't struggle with memory loss, dementia. So God remembered Noah. 
What does that mean? Why Yisker? Again, this is not the time to talk about Yisker, so on my list of books one day that I want to write, but is Yisker, who is Yisker for? Is Yisker for, is Yisker for the deceased? Is Yisker for us? We start Yisker by saying it's for God. Yisker Elohim, God, could you remember my loved ones? As if he could forget. For whom is Yisker? That's a separate question. See my book. Hopefully it will come out in my lifetime. But I want to go to a comment of Rabbi Soloveitchik. On these words, Vayiskor Elohim, Rabbi Soloveitchik says the following. This Pasuk is the first cited in the Zichrona section of Rosh Hashanah. We know it from Yisker, but those who don't say Yisker also should recognize it from where? From the first part of the Zichrona section. The Musaf Amidah, the longest Amidah of the whole year, is divided into three sections. Musaf is divided into Malchios, Zichronos, and Shofros. So the first Pasuk of the middle section, Zichronos, is Vayizkor Elohim Es Noach. One theme of Zichronos is divine providence. Hashem sees and remembers everything. He's concerned, I'm reading it from Rabbi Soloveitchik. He is concerned simultaneously with the universe as a whole, as well as each person individually. The moral corollary to this idea is the notion that one should never discount the value of the individual. Just as Hashem exhibits both universal and individual concern, so too should man. One should thus not dedicate all of his efforts on behalf of the communal needs while ignoring individual needs. Hashem is concerned with infinity itself, both in the historical sense regarding all the generations of mankind and the physical sense regarding the boundless cosmos. At the same time, he remains concerned as well with each and every individual. Noah was rescued from the flood for two reasons. First, through Noah, humanity itself was saved. Second, Noah was saved because as an individual, he was deserving. Even had humanity been saved by another means, Noah himself would have been spared of his own merit. So it's a beautiful interpretation. Says the Rav, and the Rav says this in many places. The Rav says that's why there's a whole parak of Eicha dedicated to Yoshioa Melach, because the destruction of the Beis HaMikdash and the Temple is not just about the millions who were murdered and the exile of our entire people, but we have to remember the individual. And the Rav says this in his commentary on Kinos, that we have Kinos that are dedicated to the Crusades and the Holocaust, we have Kinos dedicated to the loss of countless, and then we have Kinos dedicated to one or two individuals, because we have to simultaneously pay attention to the whole, to the community, to the people, and not lose perspective or sight of the individuals who comprise it. And it's true both in, de- in directions, in mourning and in grieving, and also in supporting and in caring and in loving. And that's what he says on these words, God didn't just remember humanity as a whole. God didn't just tap Noah through him to continue humanity because he cared all about this experiment called the world and the people and humanity. God cared also about Noah Specifically, he cared about he cared about both, and we too. Part of our mission and mandate to emulate and imitate Hashem is to simultaneously live in both places and to simultaneously care about both. We care about the collective, but we also have to care about the individual. And I think about that too in terms of a contemporary message and our partial perspective for today. I think about that because you know, with Corona, we hear these statistics. I, I don't know, Rahman al Tzlan. It's up to 250,000 in America and the number in our beloved Eretz Yisrael and Israel, and the number around the world, it's growing to a number and a magnitude which is beyond our comprehension. And we can lose the perspective of what it means. And that's why it's so important to remember the individuals, every life, every individual that's lost, what that means and the impact that it has. And so this notion of Ayyaz Kim, this message of simultaneously being focused, 
both in mourning and grieving, but also in caring and supporting for the collective, but simultaneously also seeing and caring about the individual is particularly important and relevant in our time. Moving right along. Perek Tes, Pasuk Aleph. Perek Tes, Pasuk Aleph. Noah comes off the Teva. He saved humanity, and he saved all the animals. Hashem says, Tzemen Ateva. Again, Rav Druk and his father, Tzemen Ateva. He doesn't get off because he saw it was dry because the raven and dove confirmed it. He only exits when God says, Tzemen Ateva, because when God says, jump, Noah says, how high? And what does he do when he gets off? What he does when he gets off is he plants a vineyard and he harvests the grapes and he produces wine and he drinks from it. And a disaster ensues. Vayachal Noach Isha Adama Vayita Karam. Vayachal. This notion of Vayachal means, Rashi tells us, Chulan. Chulan means profane, mundane. Noach goes from being holy to mundane or profane. Moshe goes from being an Ish Mitzri to an Ish Elokim. Noach goes from being an Ish Elokim to in Ish Adama. Vayachal Noach Ish Adama. Vayita Karam. Noach is exhausted. He's spent. He spiritually implodes and collapses. And Noach becomes mundane, profane. Vayachal Chulin. And he becomes an Ish Adama. He's no longer the Ish Elokim. And he plants a garden. Vayesh Menayayin. And he drinks from the wine. The Kliyakar, and we're going to run out of time, but the Kliyakar here draws a lot of analogies and parallels to none other than Adama Rishon. That Noach goes through a similar process to Adam Arishon. Noach is regaining paradise loss. Adam and Chava are born and they marry one another and they have children on the very first day in Gan Eden. And Noach has an opportunity to cash in. This is a new beginning. It's a fresh start. It's a new ability. This hard reset that's done on the world. And the Kliyakar here points out that just like what was Adam's downfall in Gan Eden, he ate from the Eitz Hadas. And there's many opinions about what the Eitz Hadas is. We know one thing, it's not. What is the Eitz Hadas not? You can thank medieval and Renaissance art and Christian leaders for corrupting what the Eitz Hadas is. One thing it was not is an apple. We know it wasn't an apple. I enjoy apples. A nice honey crisp apple dipped in peanut butter. I love apples. But it wasn't an apple. What was it? It might have been a fig. It was wheat. It was a grape. There's a lot of it. It was an esrog. There's a lot of other suggestions that are offered. So the Kliyakar here, he creates all these parallels to Adam Arishon. Adam was the beginning of the first creation, and Noah is beginning the second creation. And there are a lot of, a lot of uh, connections and overlap and parallels between the two. But here the Kliyakar writes, Vayachal Noach Isha Adama, Vayachal Lashon Chulen, HaChulen Hepacha Kedusha. It's the opposite of Kedusha. Hayayin Margir Le'erva. You know, why is, why is becoming intoxicated, why is wine, Chulen, and the opposite of Kedusha? Because when a person becomes intoxicated, they misbehave. They become morally depraved and corrupt. They're not in control. They have poor judgment. He's called an Ish Adama because now, instead of striving for lofty, he just wants the physical pleasures of this world. He craves and he lusts for what is here. And that's what wine does. Intoxication and wine draws us to be able to live in that way. It corrupts us. And Noah's legacy ultimately is not that tzaddik. And it's not the Ish Elokim. He is Vayachal Chulan, and he is the Ish Adama. But here's something incredible. The Medrash Breshis Rabbah points out, look at the Pasuk. Has anyone here planted a vineyard? I proudly planted a garden during Corona. And I've been talking about it nonstop, to the point that my kids think I only planted it so I would have things to give drushes about. That's only partially true. 
but it's also partially because I'm enjoying it. The first pepper has emerged. It's beautiful. I'm in love with it. I understand the mitzvah of Bikurim even more now. So we have a beautiful little garden. And I'll tell you that every day we go out and we look at it and we wait. And it's been several weeks, a couple months, and we're still waiting. If you plant a vineyard, how long does it take to get a grape? I started to say the Eitz Adas was a grape. The downfall of Adam was a grape and the downfall of Noah is a grape. The parallels run all the way through. How long does it take to plant a vineyard? I don't know, because that didn't make it in my garden. I'm not ready to make wine yet. We'll put it on the list after I publish my book. So it takes more than a day, but look at the Pasuk. Perek Tes Pasuk Aleph. What happens? What happens? Sorry, look a little bit longer. Vayachel. Where's the Pasuk? He comes out and he plants the garden and immediately he gets drunk. Doesn't it take time for the vine to grow? Doesn't it take time before he's going to get the grape and produce the wine? Where's the Pasuk? Why can't I find it? Page 42. Perek Tes, Pasuk Chaf Aleph. He becomes an Isha Dama. Thank you, Rabbi Brand. He plants a vineyard. It's like one in one process. It's in one moment. He plants, he drinks, he becomes drunk. Didn't it take weeks or months? Ask a vintner, ask someone who runs a vineyard. How long does it take before you can produce that bottle? And doesn't the bottle have to age? How is Noah? So you know what the Medrash says? It was a nace. It was a miracle. Hashem did a miracle that Noah planted the vineyard and a moment later, it only took one moment until it grew. Ask the Dibno Magid, why in the world would Hashem do that miracle? Of all the miracles Hashem could do, Hashem made that the miracle? I've got some suggestions of miracles He could perform. People who are sick, who I want Him to miraculously cure. Peace I want Him to bring to the world to miraculously make this election go away make this corona go away. That's the miracle. Noah was really thirsty, really craved a nice bottle, so Hashem made a miracle where what? He planted and he was able to benefit and produce the wine immediately and right away. That's the miracle? It's a bizarre miracle. So I saw this Bibna Magi quoted from my friend, Rabbi Asher Brander, a Rav out in LA, and he says the following. He quotes this Bibna Magid, and the Bibna Magid says the following. He gives the following mushal. I'm going to read it to you in Rabbi Usher Brander's, um, the way he quotes and modifies the Dibno Magid. Dibno Magid often gives a solution by quoting a parable, a mushal. A poor chassid yankel pleads with his Rebbe to grant him a brach of wealth. And the Rebbe responds by assuring him that the first endeavor he invests in will be wildly successful. So the chassid comes home to burst him with excitement, even counting the guilt. But when he enters, he rushes to his wife, demanding access to the last few coins hidden in their hovel. His wife refuses to give it to him. She knows what a shlamil, what a shlamazel, what a failure he is, and she doesn't want to squander those last few coins to him. He's surely going to lose them. But he persists, she refuses, and they get into this huge fight, this huge machlokas. He snoops around and he finds the money, he takes it, he goes to the market, he buys carpets, he sets up a booth, and Yanka waits one day, two days, two weeks, no business, and he has nowhere to turn but the Rebbe. He goes back to the Rebbe demanding the return of his money. The Rebbe listens to his tale, and he says, Rebbe, I did exactly what you told me. I came home, I got the money, I invested it, and no hatzlacha. I wasn't successful. So the Rebbe turns to Yankel and he says, have you given me the complete story? Are you leaving something out? So Yankel says, well, the whole story is not only did I not succeed, even after I invested the money the way you told me, but 
In fact, I got in the biggest argument, the biggest fight I've ever had with my wife. We have amazing shalom bias, we've always gotten along, and this actually precipitated what became the worst fight that we ever had. The worst fight. So the Rebbe looked at him and he said, Yanko, the bracha I gave you was that the first endeavor you would have would be wildly successful. But you know, you squandered it. Because instead of the first endeavor being in the investment, the first endeavor you had was a fight with your wife. It was the most wildly successful, the biggest fight you've ever had with your wife. The bracha was that the first thing that you put your kochos into should be extraordinarily successful. And it was. But the first thing you put your kochos into was to fight with your wife. And it was extraordinarily successful. It was the biggest fight you ever had. So says the Dibna Magid, Kaddish Baruch Hu made a miracle. And he said to Noach, when you come off that teva, and you hit the hard reset in the world, and you're starting from scratch and starting from fresh, I give you a bracha that you should be wildly successful. The problem is that Noach, the first thing he did was plant the vineyard. So the bracha was chal on the first thing he did, but the first thing he did was chulin. So it's not that Hashem chose to do a miracle in this bizarre, unusual place and way. It's that this was the place that Hashem, that Noach chose to put his energy and therefore it was wildly successful instead of what should have been the first place, which was to reconstruct and to rebuild the world that, that was lost. As it is every week, we have a lot more to get to that we did not share, but Baruch Hashem, we're going to read Parshas Noach again next year. Thank you for joining us. Until next time, stay happy, stay healthy, stay holy. Continue tomorrow morning, 10 Minutes of Meaning at 8.15. Living with Amuna at 8.45. Tomorrow night, another amazing Behind the Bima at 9 p.m. Until then, everyone be well and take care.